This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. Um, I'm just going to have you maybe take a second and introduce yourself. I know you do want to remain anonymous, so if you can kind of explain to our listeners your involvement with our blog and kind of who you are in that respect, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, so uh, on her, I go by the name Phoenix in the Ashes. Um, I've written several pieces now for her. Um, I am the author of I Was 13, He Tried to Rape Me, um, as well as Fool Me Twice, Parts 1 and 2. Um, I've also written some lighter pieces, such as uh, Healing Through Music, and I can't remember the other one. I think it was um, Dating, and it was talking about triggers of dating uh, post-abuse. And uh, yeah, so I've written for a couple of those, and uh, that's who I am. Yeah, so you've been around and kind of a part of the community already. Yeah, I've been kind of, I've been sitting background with uh, anonymity, but it's been great to be able to share my story in a safe way. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that perspective because I think, you know, almost I think all of our uh, blog contributors are anonymous and it does create a sense of safety that people don't need to know who you are, but you still get to express yourself and put your story out there. And I know we've had so many survivors read the blog and have those stories, you know, resonate with them and be really impactful. So um, it's neat that you get to kind of engage with us in this new platform, too. Absolutely. I, I think this is really cool because, I mean, you, you can always write something, but I mean, it's very different in how people will take a message from that and how your, your message actually is conveyed versus when you actually say it. I think, too, survivors talking about it out loud is a very different form of healing, whereas writing it is sort of an, the initial step I took, I guess, to confront what had happened, whereas speaking about it now is significantly more empowering for me. Mm-hmm. No, I, I love this. I like what I'm hearing in your words is this like, it's like an evolution of storytelling of like doing it in a way that, you know, like gradually over time, you're sort of graduating into these like new ways of expressing yourself. And yeah, I mean, saying shit out loud is really scary. So <laughs> it it is for sure. I mean, there are times where, you know, just because of what had happened, I I'm still very nervous about speaking about it, you know, face to face with people, but slowly I, I have been getting more confident and slowly I have been, you know, starting to open up a little more to family and friends. And, you know, it's, it's really brought a whole new sense of healing to everything for me to finally verbalize and connect with other people, especially. Yeah, we're just like, yeah, I mean, that's it, man. Like, that's why we're doing this. <laughs> Yes, I'm just so excited to have you on. And um, with that, I think we'll just kind of like dive right in. Um, cool. So the way that I start every podcast is just to kind of open up the floor for you to start sharing your story wherever you feel most comfortable or wherever it makes the most sense for you. 
Yeah. So on the first thing I actually ever wrote for We Are Her was uh, my piece talking about, you know, I was 13, he tried to rape me. My first ever relationship had been highly abusive and it's it's left a kind of standing etch on my, my love life, I guess you would say. Um, at, at the time I was in junior high, I had never had a real relationship. You know, there's like junior high relationships where you like hold hands with people and go to the movies every now and then. You're like, this is my boyfriend. And I I grew up in a very sheltered family. You know, I really, my family didn't talk about things like intimacy or anything like that. And schools do a horrible job sometimes of teaching kids what safe relationships are. And I had been near my abuser for a considerable amount of time. We were in similar social circles and uh, we had started dating and it very quickly, you know, everyone was kind of like, oh, wow, you know, they're dating. Like, they're so cute together. I always saw them together. And for me being someone who always kind of felt like a black sheep and never really felt like I fit in well, suddenly this guy was, I mean, he, he consumed my life very quickly. Um, my abuser had started off in the way that I guess a lot of abusers do where he was constantly just giving me overwhelming amounts of attention that I wasn't used to. It was, oh my gosh, you are so pretty. You are the, the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. Everyone, this is my girlfriend. And I had never had that before. And to me, I was like, wow, somebody is, is proud to be with me. Somebody somebody actually likes me. And, you know, being, being that young when you're 13 and, you know, you don't understand your hormones. You don't understand a lot of what's going on socially or bodily. Oh God, middle school's the freaking worst. It's a hard enough time <laughs> for anybody. Absolutely. And it was, you know, at the first, I was so excited and everyone else around me was like, wow, this is so great. You know, you've got a boyfriend. And you know, I had never had a relationship before. And I remember one thing that really always sticks in my head was the first time he kissed me because he had told me he'd never been kissed before and I hadn't either. And it was the weirdest situation because, you know, when you're a little kid and you're thinking about like, oh my God, my first kiss is going to be like at a dance or like, it's going to be this super cute romantic moment. And that's not how it was in the slightest. I, I've always been really awkward physically. Um, I'm kind of, I'm on the spectrum. And so physically, like some types of intimacy are very weird for me. And I had told him that, you know, I wanted to kiss him at some point, but I wasn't really sure when. And I mean, that's just confusion of being, you know, that young. And oh God, yeah, you do and you don't and you do and you don't and you have every right to decide when even at 12, 13, 14. Absolutely. And we were sitting in his mom's van in a parking lot while she was going into the store. I mean, we were 13 and his friend was in the car with us who always made me uncomfortable. I mean, he was the kind of person who always made very disgusting comments and I frankly, never liked being around him. Um, so we were sitting in the van all together and I turned over to say something to him. 
and he had just grabbed my face and like just smashed his lips against mine and I remember being just so caught off guard and I I kind of couldn't breathe for a second and he he was like so happy and in my head I was like okay well you know you just had your first kiss you should be so excited like oh my god you kissed a boy but I was sitting there just like sick to my stomach feeling and I that was honestly the pivotal moment I think about when I think about where I started actually watching his behavior and more things that were going on because so much of it just blindly passes under the radar. Oh yeah. So much of it is so is, you know, from the outsider looking in, it's like, Oh, it's just kids. Oh, middle school. So awkward. I mean, it's true. It is like an uncomfortable time, but consent still matters. And like you were saying before, we just don't talk about it. So like how the hell were you supposed to know? And also all your friends, even parents and teachers looking in, it's easy to just write it off as like kids being kids, but it's not okay. And that's a big red flag for future issues that could arise. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things that drove my abuser a lot was constantly comparing himself to other guys his age. Because, I mean, his best friend was already having sex with his girlfriend. Um, and I think he held some sort of bitterness that he was still a virgin. And I feel like he kind of just wanted to get there for the sake of getting there. And, you know, for me, I was just so torn because it's like societally, everybody and my friends and my family was like, oh, wow, your little boyfriend, that's so cute. Like he gets you gifts and he's always saying how cute you are. And, you know, nobody else saw what I was seeing. And I don't think it helped either that there was a lot of like religious affiliation to it. He was very active in a local church and he was sort of this golden boy there because he would help with, you know, like all the kids groups and stuff like that and watching the little kids and um, helping with all these activities because his mom did them with the church. And, you know, people just looked at him and like this, this golden boy who could do no wrong. And then I was seeing the side where, you know, I would say something and he would just make the like horrific comments back to me. Like I remember I told him one day that I wasn't feeling good. I had gotten overheated the day before and he just like threw this backhanded com comment at me where I was like, Hey, I don't feel good. And he's like, well, why did you even come over then? And I remember looking at him just like, I was so baffled. And I was like, because you said you wanted me here. And he's like, well, you don't feel good. Then I don't know why you're here. Like I could have made plans with like one of my friends. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll go home. Well, then I went home and he blew my phone up with text messages. And, you know, I had just gotten a cell phone, like just prior to, to dating him, like, you know, and suddenly my, my, my texts are just pinging off constantly. And he's just like, I'm so sorry. I miss you. I shouldn't have said that. Um, you're so beautiful. I, I'm sorry. I was just mad. I was going to make other plans today, but I, I just really wanted to see you. And it was, it was never apologizing for his actual behavior. It was like, just saying like, he wanted me so much and like, he missed me and he loved me. And I was just like, my 13 year old little head was just reeling because I'm like, what he said to me made me feel horrible. But now he's like, he loves me. And like, the first time somebody tells you they love you when you're 13, you're like, oh my God, it's love. 
And also those, those behaviors and those patterns happen to adults and it's confusing for adults too, but to be 13 really amplifies, you know, the effects of that kind of abuse. And I'm hearing this like hot and cold pattern where we tend to think of abuse as like this full on onslaught of violence, but it can often oscillate between like love bombing and then cold shouldering. And it keeps you on shifting sands. Like you never know where you stand. It's really confusing. One minute you hate yourself because they don't like you enough. And the next minute you're smothered in love. It's like too much. And it's just like, you're, it's like a, a constant like battering of the senses. And it keeps you really disoriented. So you just have no idea what's going on, especially at 13. And this happens again, like this pattern that you're talking about. I hear survivors talk about like adult survivors experience the same thing. So like, there's definitely some patterns there, I think that are more universal than not. Absolutely. And I, I think the thing was, is after he had kissed me, I feel like it kind of just set off that, that whole dichotomy of what he was feeling against his friends who were experiencing more things than he was. And I, I don't know if it was something, I, I have a feeling with his own family. He kind of was the pampered child, I guess you could say, of his family. And to his parents, he could really do no wrong. He asked for something, he got it. And he came from a very well-off family. So it didn't really matter if it was a new gaming console, if it was, you know, something expensive, he wanted to go on a trip or he wanted to go somewhere. Like his his parents would do it. He was not used to ever hearing the word no. And I think that was something that I set him off with was that in times that I didn't want to do things that he wanted to do, it was like I was calling to question this whole existence and reality he had had where nothing had ever been denied to him. You were challenging his sense of power, I think, which can absolutely set off people with abusive tendencies. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of abusers have this engrossed sense of entitlement to other people's bodies, to treat them however they want, you know, they feel like they deserve X, Y, or Z. But if that is challenged, it can escalate them into more extreme forms of violence, for sure. And I mean, that that's exactly what, what had happened. I mean, I remember that the, just the patterns of conversation with him, it, it's like you said, it creeps up on you. Because you know, it started as like these little things like, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. Like, you're amazing. And then it'd be like, why are you doing this? I don't like it when you do that. And it would get me like feeling insecure. But as time went on, it was just becoming more and more mentally painful for me. And it was like, I, I always could never tell with him if I was in the good or in the bad. And his, I remember we had one instance where, you know, at 13, you're, you're getting to know your body, your body's changing a lot. It's very confusing. And I remember, you know, there were times where all I ever wanted to wear was like a t-shirt and jeans because that was just my thing. But he was always like, oh no, I want you to wear this like strapless tank top because it looks, it makes you look sexy. And I was so uncomfortable wearing that kind of thing. I, I didn't feel okay in my body to wear it, but it was like, it was making him happy. and. I was like, I didn't want to get in a bad place with him because it's like, he would tell me what he wanted me to wear. And part of me was like, 
part of me was like, oh yeah, it's because, you know, he likes that. He finds it attractive to you. Like you're just being insecure because he's telling you you're just being insecure. And it was so much gaslighting. Like when I found out what the word gaslighting meant, I got to tell you, that was an epiphany for me um, because that was something he did to me constantly. It was just like, you're paranoid or he would make a problem and be like, it's not a problem because you're making it a problem. That's the only reason it is that way. And he, I remember that instance where like, I, I was supposed to leave with him one day because, you know, neither of us had licenses. So it was always like our parents had to pick us up and take us places. And his mom would constantly like come pick me up because my parents worked all the time. So I didn't realize what was happening, but very quickly, he just became the entirety of my life. I realized suddenly like my friends weren't talking to me anymore. And he was like, it's okay. You can come sit with me and my friends at lunch. So like his friends became my friends and suddenly none of mine are talking to me. And I don't know why they all don't want to speak to me. And that was confusing, but I'm like, oh, it's okay. He's there. He's going to be my friend. He listens to my issues, but then he's making my issues. So who do I talk to about him? And I didn't really have anyone to talk to. Well, and that's isolation. You know, we talk about, uh, I think people hear that word and they don't know exactly what it looks like. And so I really appreciate your description in all of that because it's not always about physical isolation. It's not like he had you like chained in a room somewhere. It's that he had such total control over your life that you didn't have access or felt like you weren't safe enough around your friends and family. And that is in and of itself, you know, a different kind of isolation. You were alone in that. It was. And that that makes you question yourself even more because when he was the only really person that I had at the time and he's telling me I'm being insecure or he's telling me I'm acting crazy or he's telling me I'm being paranoid. My little my little 13 year old brain was just like, that's how it is. You're just you're being a dramatic, over emotional 13 year old girl. And it doesn't help when media portrays that too, as like these, these crazy little tween, you know, romances. It, it's not healthy to be putting that kind of imagery out for young children to see and expect that it's okay for like these highly, I don't want to say mature, but it is kind of mature, like pushing these mature ideals of relationships on teenagers, especially when they have the hormones in their body, but they, they don't know what they're doing with it. And we see movies and stuff like portray these like perfect teen romances. And that's what I thought was going on because that's what society told me was normal. And I had no other input telling me that what was going on with him was wrong when he was blowing my phone up, when he was, you know, making such horrific comments to me. I remember one specific that every time I've told anybody close to me about this comment, they recoiled. Because I literally remember I told him once that I didn't want to wear this dress that he had wanted me to wear. It made me feel so uncomfortable. It was too short. It was exposing me in ways I was not comfortable. And I remember I told him, I kind of was just having a bad day. And I said, I don't want to wear this. I don't care if you want me to. I'm not wearing it. And I was like, I know we're supposed to go see your friends, but I'm just going to wear a t-shirt and shorts. And he looked at me and goes, well, everyone's going to think that I just want to fuck a teenage boy. And I looked back at him and I was like, what? And he's like, well, that outfit that you want to wear, like, it doesn't even make you look like a woman. Like, you look like a 12-year-old boy, not a girl. 
who I don't want people thinking that I'm going to go fuck a teenage boy. And that was like, things got so much worse from there. Which is such a like, insidious, I mean, the implication of that is basically saying that you are undesirable, you're unattractive, you're unworthy, you're unwanted. That's the underlying message. Um, and it, it didn't help me either that at that age, I had an androgynous sort of form. But I mean, how, how many 13-year-old girls have that same kind of, you know, body image or even like, you know, young men who they're not really bulked up or anything or don't have a technically masculine, traditionally physique. But that, that doesn't mean that anything's wrong with them or that something needs to be changed or they should feel lesser. And that's exactly how he made me feel like I wasn't this, you know, like super curvaceous feminine form. And I knew there was no way my body was going to be like that for a long time. It was just, it was so infuriating for me at that point. And after a while, you know, it does. It, it's like, I like to use a comparison. It's like cracking the edge of an eggshell where you can sit there and make tiny little cracks on it for so long until finally the outside of that thing is going to rupture. And for so long, he was just, poking cracks in my shell and making me feel so horrible and I remember we had one day where it was right before homecoming and of course teenagers it's high school now you know we we've gone through almost a year of this and mentally I was in pieces I didn't know what was going on anymore he frankly terrified me sometimes with the amount of anger I would see out of him and it started with what was so normalized as just like an angry teenage boy playing video games, screaming at a TV and breaking a controller and then his parents replacing it. That kind of behavior should never be normalized. And that that was something I had seen him do very early in our relationship. And I had seen it within my own family. I had seen gaming consoles then broken, but never in complete violence that he had done it. I mean, he literally picked up an Xbox and smashed it on the ground and then jumped on it, smashing it to pieces with his shoes. I had seen that, and that somehow did not set off red flags very early on. And he continued to break stuff as we, like, went into our relationship. You know, the comments got worse that he was making towards me. He was getting more controlling of everything I did, and I just was not noticing it for so long. But I remember we were, it was right before homecoming. And of course, that's a big high school thing. You know, this is our first homecoming. And everyone's so excited because him and I were like this it couple. And I was trying to find dresses. And of course, he's sending me all these just disgusting dresses that I wanted nothing to do with. And he's sending me all these comments like, man, you would look so hot in all these. Like, man, every guy there would love to fuck you. And I remember how uncomfortable I felt, especially because at this point, physically in our relationship, you know, from the first moment of intimacy we had of any kind where he had kissed me and like forced this kiss on me, very quickly he had taken that from like, we would go to the movie theaters and I don't even remember the majority of the movies we ever saw because it ended up just every time where he would start kissing me and I could just not get out of it. Like, I would go to pull my head back, and he would just smash me back against him. And it was easier for me not to fight and just deal with it and just kind of 
be there, but not be there. Well, and to me, that's not intimacy. That's like, that's like forced physical contact. That's assault. It intimacy is. implies consent and it implies like a tenderness um, and a connection. And it doesn't always have to be like a forever and ever we're in love connection, but intimacy is, is consensual. And you, you know, from what it sounds like, were just like this object to him. I absolutely was an object to him. There was, there was no actual care from his end to mine. Not that, nothing that was actually substantial. It was superficial. But I remember like, you know, we'd go to the movie theater and I remember I would just, I, I would dread going to the movie theater. I to this day actually get physically sick if I go to a movie theater. I haven't been to a movie theater in, I want to say at least seven years. I'm not kidding. Um, he had one day where like we were sitting there and it was probably about two weeks before homecoming and I was wearing one of those stupid shirts that I hated wearing and he reached over like put his arm around me you know like the old smooth like you know reach put your arm around the girl in the theater thing and he slipped his hand under my shirt and I remember I just like it was revolting to me and I, I grabbed his hand and I like pushed it back to him. And he looked at me and he's like, what the fuck? And I was like, why? Like, I don't want you to do that. And he looked at me and he was like, I'm your boyfriend. I'm not going to fucking hurt you. I don't know why you're acting like a bitch. And I sat there for a minute and I didn't even know what to say. And of course, he immediately starts texting that best friend, the one that I can't stand being around who makes me uncomfortable. And I can see him typing on his screen saying that I'm being a bitch. What should he do about it? And I was just like, I, I was on the edge of tears because everything like he'd been so bad to me that whole week was sending me those dresses that I hated and then making those comments about me being like unfeminine or, you know, unattractive. And it just, I was at such a breaking point. And you know, as, as things have progressed in our relationship, he just had continued to try and push my limits more and more. And every time I tried to make a line, he crossed it. You know, it, it didn't matter that I told him, I don't want you like trying to grab my butt when you're kissing me. I don't want you to, you know, shove yourself up against me like this because it makes me uncomfortable. He just didn't care. And anytime I tried to express something was making me uncomfortable, it made him angry. And to me, the angrier he got, the more I got scared of him and the more I just wouldn't say anything because I, I didn't want an argument. I didn't want him to start throwing insults at me that would make me feel even worse about myself. Right. And it sounds like his, like your value to him was purely based on your sexuality and like what you, what that could give him. So like, if you weren't sexy enough, you were a boy. But that, and he was constantly trying to force you into being a sep, not just an object, but like a sex object for him. And is anytime you tried to rebel against that, he would become violent. He absolutely would. And I, as we got closer to homecoming, and you know, I, I was just thinking about like, I would have to be with him for hours on end for homecoming night. And it was the worst night I had with him was a week before homecoming, where we were sitting on the couch at his house, his parents weren't around, and he was texting me, 
or texting his friend. And I looked at him and I was like, why are you so mad? Like, we were having a good night, you know, things were actually kind of going okay. Like, he was being really sweet to me. He was, you know, that that's the hot and cold thing, where sometimes he would be just so sweet to me, where he'd be like, hey, are you tired? Come over here and, like, you can take a nap with me. Or, you know, I'll go get you a fluffy blanket and make you some tea, and I hope you feel better, and I just want to cuddle with you. You know, that was the side that that kept me around because I saw that sweet side of him sometimes and he would just love bomb me. And so that night we were just kind of, he was just love bombing me. And out of nowhere, he just looks over at me. He's like, so what are we doing homecoming night? And I was like, what do you mean? Like homecoming night? Like we're going to dinner, then going to homecoming. And he's like, well, I mean, after that. And I was like, uh, well, I thought your friend was having a party. I thought we were going to this person's house. And he's like, well, that's not where the friend who makes me uncomfortable, that's not where him and his girlfriend are going after prom or after homecoming. And I was like, I, I knew he meant that after homecoming that his friend and his that girlfriend would be going to have sex somewhere. And I was so uncomfortable with the conversation. I looked at him and I was like, I, I remember I almost cried because I was just like, I'm not ready. Like, we haven't gotten anywhere near a, a point that would make me feel okay with that. And I remember I told him, I love you, but I don't want to do this. And he couldn't take no for an answer on that. He looked at me and he was like, do you not love me? I was like, I just told you I loved you. And he's like, well, obviously you don't give a fuck about me because you're not even willing to show me that you love me. And I felt so horrible in him saying that because it's like the only way that he thought love could be expressed was through sex. And that's not what I wanted. I thought I loved him because that's what I thought love was. And it was a very skewed wrong idea on what love was because that was never love. But he, but he did not take no for an answer on that. And he assaulted me then. He didn't take no for an answer. He had slapped my face. He tried choking me. He had forced his hands on me, um, things like that. And it was horrible. And I remember that, you know, we had a significant weight difference with each other. And he held me down. And at some point, I just couldn't deal with it any longer. And I kicked him as hard as I could. He recoiled. I shoved him off me, went running upstairs. I had to beg his mom to drive me home. And she was like, well, where is he? And I was like, he's asleep downstairs. And she was like, oh, okay. And I was like, I really don't feel good. Can you please take me home? So she took me home. And I remember I got home. I was alone at home. I went and took a shower and I cried my eyes out so hard. I remember I literally just turned the water on scalding hot and I sat there until the water was so long cold. I remember I scrubbed my skin so hard that like my skin was painful because I just wanted to get rid of any feeling that he had ever touched my skin. It was so traumatizing at the time and I had no way to process what had just happened. And People don't talk about that kind of assault a lot. You know, you hear about people getting raped, but you don't hear about things like that very often, especially not at 13. 
I remember I just sat there and I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried because I just didn't know what to do. And I was sitting in my room and he was just blowing up my phone. I literally could, could not even hear it at some point because I just disassociated so hard. And at some point, I don't remember even doing it, but I had called one of my best friends who I hadn't spoken to in over a year, one of my best guy friends. And I called him and I was just hysterically crying. And he was like, hey, what's wrong? What, where, where are you? Are you okay? Like, did something happen? And I just like yelled, I'm not okay. And he was like, where, where are you? And I was like, I'm at home. And he's like, well, you know, I'm just hysterically crying. I can't even breathe. And he was like, okay. He's like, hold on. Just, just cry it out. You need to cry it out. Like, but please, for the love of God, take a breath, like breathe. And I ended up telling him everything. And this, this friend of mine is such a special person in my life. He had always been such a special person in my life. And around the time I had met my abuser, I had stopped talking to him completely because I wasn't really allowed to have male friends. And he, my abuser had like led me to believe this person only ever wanted to be around me because they wanted to have sex with me. And that's not okay, you know? But in that moment, I remember my friend told me, he's like, you have to break up with him. And I remember having such a feeling of relief hearing like, this is somebody else who realizes that what was happening was wrong. And. Right. But somebody else is seeing it too. I'm not crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember I, I was crying and I was like, homecoming is next week. Like, what am I supposed to do? And he was like, are you serious right now? He's like, I, I know you're like really traumatized. He's like, but you're not going to go to homecoming. Like, don't go with him. And I was like, I, I just sat there and I was like, I have no friends. I haven't spoken to any of my friends in months at school. Like, nobody talks to me. No one will even look at me. Like, the only friends I have are his friends. And so if I break up with him, I'm not going to have any friends. And I'm going to go to homecoming alone. And I'm going to be that person who's, like, alone at homecoming. Which just goes to show, like, how deep the manipulation can go. Like, how far an abusive person can, like, stretch their hands, get their little fingers into the corners of your life and control them to make you feel so alone that the alternative is either to be abused or to feel isolated and alone with no no friends like you're stuck with two really bad choices and those aren't always representative of the actual choices you have but you know that's how you there's feel. like a level of yeah there's a level of like brainwashing there like that's how he that is the reality that he made you see that's those are the choices you thought you had to be with him and or be alone. I, after I like gotten calmed down and got off the phone with that friend of mine, I sat down and I called my abuser and I told him I was breaking up with him, that I wasn't going to homecoming with him. And I remember he was, it, it was that hot and cold thing where at first he started crying and he's like, I love you so much. I just wanted to show you that I loved you. And what am I going to do without you? And at one point he threatened to kill himself and said that he can't live, he can't live without me. And that I, I must just not love him because he's ugly. And 
you know, he, he started victimizing himself thinking that I was going to take him back. And I remember feeling so conflicted at first because I was like, Oh my God, I've hurt him. I've hurt his feelings. And then it just snapped in my head. What my friend had said, where it's like, he's going to try to make you feel like he's the victim. Don't fall for it. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not staying with you. And then of course it turned angry. And then it was like, you don't fucking deserve me. And, you know, I, I was just sticking with you because I, I feel sorry for you. And like quickly trying to turn it back into a head game. And I just hung up. I just couldn't deal with it anymore after what had happened in the last 24 hours. And then his friend, his friend started blowing my phone up too. The two of them all night were texting me and calling me and leaving me voicemails. And his friend was like, I can't believe you broke his heart right before homecoming. What a fucking bitch you are. Like he misses you and he loves you and you're being a bitch to him. And finally, at one point I broke my phone. I, I told my parents that I had accidentally dropped it in the bathroom in water and it was ruined, but I, I purposefully broke my phone so that I didn't have to hear from him anymore. Which takes so much strength. You know, I, um, as you've been speaking, something that popped into my mind is this idea of like a trauma bond. I don't know if you've ever heard yes. of that term before, but that hot and cold, hot and cold basically creates this like really unhealthy attachment where you as the as the victim in the situation is essentially being conditioned to try and stay in his good graces. Like you know, the, the, like the, the love bombing and then the, the cold shouldering leaves you being like, what did I do? How do I fix it? I have to stay on their good side. I need their affection. I want things to be good again. So it creates this like traumatic bond and it's really, really hard to break that. It's really hard to get enough perspective and space from that person to be able to say like, this isn't okay. And I don't have to do what they say. So having that friend there to kind of help provide that outside perspective is like really amazing. Like good on that friend, especially in middle school, high school, like people don't know what the hell they're doing or, you know, um, but for you to find that inner strength and to be able to say like, no, enough is enough. Like that's really, really, really hard to do. It was, it was insane. I remember the next morning after I woke up because I woke up and I had bruises just all over me from where he had hit where he had hit me. And I remember just looking in the mirror and like, I'd never even really used makeup much before, but I remember before I had to go to school, I had to just take it on. And I remember it was horrible because suddenly everyone in school, like I was never popular and he wasn't necessarily popular, but suddenly people were just yelling at me in the hallway. And I was getting, I literally had two people try to trip me in the hallway and nobody would sit with me at lunch. I was sitting all alone. And in high school, that's so isolating and like so mentally damaging. But I remember that my, my parents had replaced my phone and it had the same number still. So I was still getting the extra messages and stuff that they were sending to me, but I blocked them finally. <laughs> and, um, my friend who had been there that night told me that I shouldn't let him win, that we should go to the homecoming game still. Um, this friend of mine was not from the same school. So it was actually his school against mine for homecoming. 
And so he said, well, you know what, I'll, I'll come down and I will, I'll come spend that evening with you at the game. So you're not alone. And then that way you can still go and have fun and not miss this like first high school experience and not let him win. But like, you can feel safe while we do that. And it was so terrifying for me at first because I'm like, oh my God, like everyone hates me and he's going to be there and everyone believes him. Everyone thinks- Which can I say is just some bullshit because- It is. You you know, to have to go through something that traumatizing and then to have no support and not just no support. It's not like there was, it wasn't neutral. You were Mm -hmm. actively being harassed, hazed told that you were like wrong, that it never happened, gaslighted by your entire school community and peer group. I mean, that it's just like trauma on top of trauma. It was. And I remember we pulled up to the game that night and my friend reached out and kind of gave my hand a squeeze. And he's like, you're strong enough to do this. He's like, you were strong enough to leave him. Like you can get through this and like, I'll be here with you. And so we had gone into the game and I actually had saw some of my old friends and one of them was daring enough to come up to me and ask me like why I wasn't with my abuser at the game. Like, because they'd see my abuser walking around with his friends and I wasn't obviously with him. And I was nowhere in a place of willing like be able to talk about what had happened, but I was like, something really bad happened. We broke up. I don't know why you haven't talked to me for like the last six months. And he had literally lied to all of my friends and told them that like I was only their friend out of pity and that like I had said these horrible things about all of them and that was his form of isolating me. He literally cut off every one of my friends. And so I I kind of talked with them and you know around the middle of the game I was back sitting with all my old friends. And you know they didn't know what was going on. They knew there was a lot and there was a lot of questions about everything that I wasn't answering, but they were willing to be like, Hey, something obviously like really bad happened, but you know, she is our friend. And so they let me back in and about halfway through the game, I said that I needed to go get a drink. So I left my friend group along with my other friend who had come with me. And I was walking down to like the concessions area and it was super packed. I mean, it's homecoming game. And I like slipped behind this alley behind like our accession, like the concession area. And I remember that I had my arms grabbed and I was just suddenly being dragged. And it was my abuser and his friend who scared the hell out of me. And they were literally dragging me towards the back gate of the football field. And I was kicking both of them, trying to get them to let go of me. And my friend who had been there for me, he comes running up all of a sudden and he's like, what the fuck is going on here? And my abuser looked at me and goes, who the fuck are you? And my friend goes, well, my friend pushed both of them away from me and like kind of put me behind him. And he's like, I know who the fuck you are. And my abuser looked at him like, you know, it was suddenly this challenge, like, how does this other guy know me and this other guy's protecting me? And my friend looked at him and he's like, I know what you did, motherfucker. I know you put your hands on her. And if you ever even think about touching her again, I'll break every single one of your fingers. And my abuser's friend had looked at him and he was like, 
are, do we have a problem here? And started posturing, like cracking his hands, you know, acting like it's going to be this fight, which honestly, looking back was pretty comedic because my friend is trained in multiple forms of close contact combat. He was a two-time black belt and MMA already. Uh, that wasn't a fight that was going to work. And so my friend had said, okay, boys, well, just want to let you know that, like, this isn't a fair fight. And my abuser thought that was hilarious, thinking it was in his favor. And that's when my friend was like, I'm a double black belt. And if either of you dare come near her again, I'll gladly put your body in a ditch somewhere that no one will ever find you. And. Which is so sad that, like, you know, it's not enough for that abusive person to just hear, like, no, and I need to be respect, like, no, don't touch me. I need, you know, respect my boundaries. That they have to, one, be threatened with violence. To, to And it has to come from another man. And it has to come from another man. You know, like, you, at that point, like, were never going to be listened to. They had to be challenged by another guy as if you were, like, this with physical property. violence. Right, which is just like, oh, my Lord. That is toxic masculinity beyond. <laughs> yeah. I mean, good Lord. Insane. And I... I have literally, I have no question in my mind whatsoever that if my friend hadn't been there, then I, he would have dragged me out of the football field and raped me. I have literally no reservations in saying that because I know that is exactly what would have happened. And I have no question either that I'm sure his friend would have raped me too because his friend made me feel so, ugh, just vile. Yeah. And my friend, uh, we left and he knew that I was just, a mess and he was like I'm not taking you home because he's like I know your parents are home and I know you don't want to tell them about this like I know you this is what you've asked you've asked me not to tell them so him and I just we kind of drove around for a while listening to music and catching up and um I mean that that friend of mine is still I'm actually dating that person now um Oh my god! And it comes full circle here. How many years ago was that? Now <laughs> those ten years this year, right? A decade and, later. Yeah, but that that whole night was so traumatizing. And of course, after that, my abuser had gone and told everybody I was sleeping with that friend of mine that I had cheated on him. I broke his heart before homecoming, and that stigma never left me in high school. I I didn't date through high school nobody really within my school would be willing to even talk to me and I was entirely outcasted after that and I was honestly it got to a point where I questioned if it even happened because I just I put it so far back in my mind like it didn't happen I just didn't want to acknowledge anything about it it honestly was not until I met Stevie online through a friend of mine who had recommended we are her just as like you know, like a women supporting women thing that I ever even found her. And like, I literally kept this repressed for probably about seven years. Yeah. And it was insane because it was like my whole life since that I had repressed it acting like it never happened. And I heard people talk about sexual assault and I just, I would never touch the conversation because I was just like, I couldn't even admit to myself what had happened or even acknowledge that it was reality. And I questioned myself so often like, did that actually happen? Did you make that up? Did you? Right. And you had so many people telling you it didn't. Like, you don't, 
nobody wants to believe that that happened to them. Our body's survival instinct is often to say like, nope, minimize, you know, compartmentalize, shut it down, don't think about it. But then to have so many people reinforce that instead of validate, it just mm-hmm. makes you push it even deeper, or disconnect from it even more. Um, and, you know, the other thing is that when a lot of people don't realize that people who've been in an abusive relationship are a lot more likely to end up in another one. Right. And I hadn't dated anybody seriously through high school just because of what had happened. And I, I got into college and I, fe- I quite honestly, I fell into the exact same sort of trap where I, I had met a guy who was close friends with a lot of my other friends and we got along really well and we started dating and very quickly it was, yeah, I love you and you're everything to me. And it, it was so weird. And I, I, I guess I somehow had, like, I still was never even acknowledging the fact that I had, at that point, I had not even acknowledged the fact that I had been assaulted when I was younger, you know? And my mind put it in a format with that relationship that it's not abuse because he's not hitting you because my, my abuser had physically harmed me several times. He had physically hit me several times. He had thrown me on the floor several times. Like, but the person I dated in college, my brain started excusing behaviors that I should have caught earlier. And I'm not even going to say that I should have caught earlier because that's that's self-blame. Right. I'm not going to do that to myself. Um, Which, thank you. I love that, like, little catch of yourself. You're like, you know what? No. <laughs> Actually, I didn't do anything wrong. But I know what you mean by that. It's like hindsight 2020, you know? It is. And I I remember, like, around the time I started dating that person, I was slowly starting to acknowledge that something had happened to me when I was younger, but I still was not acknowledging it for anywhere what it was right um and I I was trying to kind of navigate socially in college because obviously in college no one knows who you are so all my stigmas from high school nothing came with me and none of these people knew who I was none of these people cared about a past and I I actually had friends like really really good friends that I gained and I was like practically with this guy I was dating like almost two months into the relationship, we were practically living with each other. Like it, we, we had fallen into that trap of just like, Oh, it's college. It's different. We're not in high school anymore. Like we have all this freedom of our own. And my brain rationalized so much of this bad behavior and abusive behavior as he's not hitting you. He's, He's not assaulting you in the same way that you were assaulted by your abuser because the person I had dated was my first actual like consensual intimacy with somebody. But even then I was conflicted about it and it was a lot of coercion. So the one, I think it goes to show like how, how different every abusive relationship can look and how it manifests. Um, And also Just that, you know, again, just because it didn't immediately start out as super violent or never got super physical, it doesn't mean that it wasn't abuse. It's just a different kind of abuse. I Um, think, too, when you like in my case where my first experiences with 
somebody else were assault. It, it changed my mind so much on what actual physical relationships looked like. And it was, I mean, the, the beginning of my relationship with that person, everything was consensual. It was, it was just new. And it was, it was learning for me, quite honestly, because I, I had not had these experiences that most of my peer group had, you know, and part of me was kind of like always telling myself in my head, like, of course, all this is going to be weird. Like you're the only virgin in your friend group. Like you've been, in, you, you had something bad happen to you. I wasn't willing to admit that it was assault, but something happened to you. Like your experiences are going to be different. And that person and I, we, I don't even know how to explain this. Um, we were practically living together by like two months into our relationship. And he was the first person that honestly, I ever thought I was going to marry. Like I never saw marriage in the books. I never saw like kids. And I actually at one point did see that with him. But in his family, like relationships, like people in his family, they get married after like six months of dating. Like that is, that's actually like a long time in his family to date before you get engaged. Um, one of his family members got engaged after three months of dating. And I remember it was, I've gotten a lot closer with uh, my brother as I've gotten older. And my brother was like one of the first people I ever opened up to other than that friend of mine. And I had just kind of told my brother a little bit about what had happened. And my brother and I have such a good relationship. And I remember my brother asking me, well, does the person you're dating now, do they treat you better? Like, do they treat you with, um, you know, do they treat you with respect? And, you know, I know you've been with this person for a while, but like, hey, I know we've never talked about this sort of thing before, but like, is it a healthy relationship? And it was so weird because I was sitting there looking at my brother, like, why wouldn't this be a healthy relationship? Like, I'm still dating them. Well, and then like compared to, you know, it's we're, as humans, we're just like always comparing. And like, if you were to try and compare that relationship to your first relationship, it's like, oh, well, it's not that bad. So how could it be abuse, you know? And it was, it was so weird. It really was because I remember my brother was like, you know, I know you guys are spending a lot of time together. Like, do you get any, do you, do you spend a lot of time with like your friends outside of him? Cause like you guys are, like living together basically. And I was like, what? <laughs> and my brother was, um, he's just like, well, Hey, like, I know you spend a lot of time with him. Just make sure you're spending time with your other friends. Like, make sure you're just, you're, you're not spending all your time with one person because, hey, that's what I went through in previous relationships and it's not healthy. Like, I know it's super cool when you're living with somebody and like, it feels like you have this mature relationship, but sis, don't, don't get too caught up in like pushing this where it, it isn't. Go brother, by the way. Heck yeah. <laughs> I love my brother. Yeah. Um, it was it was around Christmas time. We had been dating for, I think, like five or six months at that point. And we were back at my house. And the whole situation is still weird to me because, you know, we had had consensual intimacy before. We'd never had actual sex or anything like that. But, um, you know, we've been intimate in other ways. 
and I wasn't feeling good this night. And I told him I was going to take a lot of like uh, cough cold medicine because I wasn't feeling good. I thought I picked up a you know something on campus, and it was like two in the morning. I woke up, and his hands were under the sheets in my panties, and I was so like disoriented because I was high as hell on you know cough cold medicine, and like it took me several minutes to actually put together what was happening. I remember I rolled over and I looked at him and I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm getting you off. And I was like, I was asleep. And he goes, oh, well, you were moaning, so you must have liked it. I remember I didn't sleep for the rest of the night. Like, he just rolled over and fell asleep. And Yeah, that's not, that's not, <laughs> I've seen some like, great memes out there, like sleeping, I promise you sleeping people are not, are not enjoying it. <laughs> I promise. Yeah. And like, I remember I woke up the next morning. He, we actually had like a weekend apart then for like several days because he was traveling with his family. And it was the first real time I got away from him in a long time. Like we had sure to have some space, have enough clarity to even begin to analyze what was going on. Cause I mean, we were, we were, we were living together basically. And I started thinking through like a lot of other behaviors. And then I just like got this cascade of all this stuff. I suddenly was like piecing together was so bad. And I was like, oh my gosh, he, he's constantly with you 24 seven. Like you don't see your family without him. You don't see your friends without him. He is, if you're not with him, he's blowing your phone up constantly. He constantly is like I realized he was making these comments to the effects of like you know oh you just must not love me like it it seemed casual but I was thinking back and I was like oh my god that's exactly what your abuser used to say and then I had that moment where it just hit and suddenly I was like oh my god how many of these other comments did he make that were the exact same things that your abuser said right it kind of all came together it was such a staggering moment. And then I was like, oh my God. Like, are you, and I remember there had been a moment where him and I were starting to be intimate and he had grabbed my neck. And that was one thing that my abuser had choked me when I was being assaulted. And I immediately like blacked out. And I had a full on panic attack that like was, you know, he, I didn't know what had happened because I blacked out. Um, But he was angry at me after that happened. And he's like, what the fuck happened? And I was like, I I was just traumatized. And I was like, just don't touch there. Don't touch there. And he got angry at me. and was like, well, you killed the mood. And then he didn't talk to me for several hours. Right. So like hindsight 2020, all of these, like in retrospect, you know, you can kind of like flash back to all of these moments and have this clarity of like, this isn't right. What happened, you know, like I understand, I can see all of this through a different perspective now. And that's exactly what happened because I, I did, I look back and I was like, suddenly all these experiences, I was like, that, that, that's abuse. That's not healthy. And I remember I, I looked around my place and I, I just had all of his possessions there. Cause I mean, yeah, he was living with me and I just walked around and I picked up all of his stuff and put it in a box. 
And it was like the moment I made that connection that all these things were the same that my abuser had done, it was just done for me. Like the moment I put those pieces together, I also put the piece together that I was not in love with him. And I had questioned that for even a while. I was like, did you just break up with him because you thought you saw something? But as time's gone on, I've been like, that was the best decision I ever made because that was me recognizing that abuse and putting an end to it the moment I, I realized what it was. Yeah. And learning how to trust your own voice, your own instincts, your own gut and saying, no, I don't need to listen to that person and what their interpretation of this situation is, but I can listen to like my own instincts. I know what happened and like being able to trust your own inner dialogue about things is like, it's hard, but, um, you did it. (laughs) And I, I, he pulled the same thing my abuser had when I broke up with him. He was threatening to kill himself. And as somebody who had been there in the shoes of contemplating suicide before, I knew he wasn't being serious. And I was like, you you don't just tell somebody that you're just going to go do that. Like, well, and, and it can be used as a manipulation tactic. Like if they feel like you're, if they're losing control or you're slipping away from them, you know, that threat of suicide is, is often a manipulation. And he knew that that threat had a lot more power on me because I lost one of my best friends from high school to suicide just a month earlier. Oh, yeah. He knew how to hit you where it hurt. I got mad at him and I, I literally told him that he was a horrible person for even saying that because I, I told him I knew he was manipulating me when he said that. And I think that really caught him off guard that I actually said that. And of course he left my place, was took his stuff, broke some stuff on his way out, just smashed it out of his way. And I remember I sat there for the longest time, but I just felt so accomplished. And I ended up calling my friend again, the same one who had been there for me when I left my abuser. And I called him because we, we had kept, uh, in contact, but we hadn't really like been super, super close over the years, but we still kept in contact, checked in with each other every now and then. And I called him and he was like, Hey, it's kind of late. Like, are you okay? And I was like, I, I told him everything that happened again. And he's like, do you realize what you did though? And I was like, I broke up with him. And he's like, you recognized it on your own. You took the initiative to get rid of him. And not only that, but you didn't let him continue to manipulate you. And he's like, do you realize how much you've grown through all this? And I was like, I just can't believe that I ended up being like assaulted twice, that I ended up being abused twice. And he, it was such a profound moment because he was like, don't look at it that way because he goes, these were two different people that he's like, and for what you've told me, he's like, you did love the other person or at least thought you did. And he's like, you know, he goes, think about it. He goes, you've survived this twice, but you learned from the first experience. And he's like, it, it, he's like, I'm sure it feels horrible to you. Like putting the pieces together, but he's like, I'm so proud of you. He's like, you, you did it this time entirely on your own. I was just like, oh my gosh, I did. I did it. I did it on my own. 
which is like, you should never have had to have gone through that in the first place. But I do think that sometimes it's so easy for us to like shit on ourselves and think about like, why didn't I see it? Or why couldn't I have done it better? Or why didn't I do this in that moment? But to look back and sort of rewrite the narrative and pinpoint all of the things that you did do well, that you did, you know, that you did do to survive. Like those are, that's resiliency. Those are the moments that you can look back on and know you never deserve to be treated like that. And there's a lot of healing that has to be done because of it. But to be able to find the moments of strength that you had are, are moments you deserve to feel proud of yourself for. Honestly, I look back and, you know, for the longest time I did, I, I felt so conflicted about everything that had happened from, but, you know, in that moment where I had put together that the person I was dating had assaulted me, it definitely brought back the fact that, oh my God, I was assaulted when I was 13. That did happen. I had to actually deal with that. But I've grown so much since making that first acknowledgement. And I can say that, you know, two years ago when I joined her, I was so terrified when Stevie was first publishing my first story. I was like, oh my God, the story's going to be out there. Like I've told nobody at that point except my friend and my brother knew a little bit and my brother's fiance now. Um, she, I had told her about what had happened. And she was actually the first person I really opened up to. I actually opened up to her before I told my brother the whole story. I love that. I love that girl so much. Um, we, I had told her and um, she had told me that she had shared her story on her already. And um, I remember I sent my story to CB and like, at first my brain was like, okay, it's been acknowledged. Like, it happened. It's down. Like, this is totally what happened. I had full and total recall of everything that had happened. I remember I felt so free because it was like, I've carried this on my back for eight years telling nobody. I was like, oh my God, it's it's out there. And I remember like, as much as like, I felt the pain of like reliving it. I was like, I felt like such a weight had been taking off my shoulders. And every time I've like, like when I published Fool Me Twice and, um, you know, stuff like that about the person I dated in college who had abused me. It's like every time that I have talked about it, I felt so much weight come off my shoulders. And it's like, it's out there. I'm not keeping this secret anymore. That's just eating me. Oh, it's so, it's so easy to get like caught in the, you're like, I call it like the hamster wheel in your own mind. Yes. You know, but if you can like put words on paper or, or out loud or in any way that you feel comfortable, if you can give shape and it doesn't even have to be words. Like I know people who use art therapy as an outlet or movement as an outlet. If you can put that experience into some other shape outside of your own head, and just put it out in the world, it is a release. It is like taking this and like, and just getting it off of your heart, off of your mind. It doesn't mean that it just like amazingly like is all better, but I do think that those experiences are incredibly healing. It has been so healing for me to write for her. And like, I, I've gone from where two years ago, I was 
terrified to talk about it. Even thinking about sharing my story was just like, my heart was racing full on almost panic attack mode. But it's like, here I am today. I'm talking about it. I don't feel nervous. I don't feel ashamed about anything that happened. And it's like where two years ago, I had still been having like nightmares and, you know, even thinking about it would make me almost physically sick. And it's like, now I've been able to actually connect with other survivors, even in person, face to face, while I haven't been able to, you know, fully get to the point where I've trusted people enough to, to say things in person about what explicitly happened. I've been able to connect with other people in person and tell them, you know, that they're not alone and share a little bit of my experiences with people face to face. And just looking back, I'm like, I went from being somebody who was so terrified to talk about it. And at that point, I felt like my abuser still had this, this like puppet string control over me. Because I was like, here I am eight years later, and this person is still silencing me. Right. I think that's why story sharing can be so powerful for people because it is like you're reclaiming your own experience. You're taking it back. Like they don't get to control you anymore and you they get to decide to who, what, when, where, why. Yep. You, it's all in your hands as to whom you tell your story to, when, how, how much, how little. Like you have total control of that. I think one of the things that's really probably helped me the most is my my brother's fiance just talking with her and her and I like actually talking about the experiences we had was so healing for me and that you know that was the first time I had talked to another person who had gone through it in person and you know we laughed we cried and we we talked about it but I remember I was like oh my god there's so much empathy and there's other people who know exactly what you went through even if it wasn't the same experience and it was so healing to have somebody else actually know what it was like to go through those things and feel the same kinds of like mental questioning and like go through the same sort of like, like you said with the hamster wheel in your mind, like somebody for once, I didn't feel isolated anymore. And that's one of the things where like, I've read other people's stories on her and it's, it's been so powerful to not only like, see as her has grown over the last couple of years and see more people's stories shared because I know that is leading to a sense of empowerment for other survivors who are finally getting their stories out but I do I look back at my own growth and I'm like I'm just constantly in awe I guess of myself and people have tried so hard to like make survivors feel like they shouldn't be like vocal about that sort of thing but I look back and I'm like you know what I'm fucking proud that I've gotten to this point like you know what I'm I'm so tired of people telling survivors to like sit down and shut up I'm like no I'm not going to shut up anymore like I'm not going to let you take on the same power that my abuser had over me because that's what I felt like I did for the longest time yes it is it's a mimicking of the same power dynamics by society where like you're locked in this control battle with an individual and then you go out into the world and the world is trying to do the exact same thing to you as that individual did. And I think it's so harmful and it's like, you know, it's fucking 2020. Like that shit's not going to fly anymore. We're done. I'm just like, you know, it, it happened in 2010. Like I've, I'm 10 years on this journey and it's like, it took me this long to get here, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, I wasn't ready before. Like, I wasn't in the place 
to deal with it. But now I'm like, it's, it's been so great. And two, to have, to have a partner now who he's been there through it all. I mean, he was there for me on the night it happened with my first assault. And he was there for me in helping pick up the pieces after my second one. But you know, we were just friends for a couple of years after I had been assaulted by my uh, abuser in high school or in college. And, you know, I had time to actually heal and put things together. And he was perfectly fine just being my friend through all that. And somewhere in that mess, we ended up getting together. But it's been so great to have him there. And, you know, he being in a healthy relationship now, he doesn't question my boundaries. He doesn't ask me if I tell him there's something that I don't want him to do. He's like, that's fine. Your body, your choice. You know, it was, uh, he, he even caught me a couple of weeks ago because I, we have a long distance relationship right now. And, um, he, <laughs> I had texted him and I was like, Hey, I've been thinking about cutting my hair. What do you think? Cause I have really long hair right now. And he's like, why are you asking me? And I was like, well, because I want to know your opinion. And he's like, do you want to cut your hair? And I was like, well, I'm thinking about it. And he goes, I'm not asking you if you're thinking about it. Do you want to cut it? And I was like, yes, kind of. Yes. And he's like, okay, then go cut it. He's like, I'm still going to love you either way. And he's like, he's like, you shouldn't even have to ask me. And I, was- I do think for survivors, sometimes if you, especially if you've been in multiple abusive relationships, um, once you're in a healthy relationship, that can feel foreign. That can feel really uncomfortable different, and, you're, and like new and like you have to like relearn how to navigate being in a healthy relationship, which is so odd. Which I I do love that my partner now is constantly reminding me, like, I don't have to apologize for things. Mm. I don't have or ask to his, ask his permission to cut your hair. Yeah, or... or like ask his permission to do things. I mean, there of course, there's times he's like, hey, would you mind wearing, you know, that dress? Because that dress gets me going, you know, stuff right. like that. And that's totally different, you know. And he he does. He knows the the stuff that I've been through and I can trust him. And that's been so great to have more of a support system because, you know, I've got my brother, I've got my brother's fiance, I've got my, my partner now. And it's, it's been such a growing experience through all this. And it's like, once you find that support group that you have, whether it's, you know, friends online, or it's, it's like the her survivor group or it's family or a friend or anything like that. Like when you get that support, it's such a different realm of like dealing with the healing process. Absolutely. I just, yeah. It's just been so great to have, like, I'm, I'm so, I don't have to be like afraid of my partner now. Like my partner now is so respectful of everything, especially now like navigating intimacy with him and actually things being entirely consensual and him constantly reminding me. If there's something that happens while we're being intimate that you don't like, or there's something you would like me to completely refrain from, or there's something you want me to do, this is up to you. I will do what you want because I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. I don't want you to feel pressured. I don't want you to feel coerced or like you owe me anything. And so when you want something, it is your choice. And that has been so refreshing to have because that was a terror of mine when I was considering dating again after 
my college relationship, especially, you know, I did date several people and things didn't work and found a couple more garbage people along the way that nothing ever came of. But, you know, now having my, my partner now, he's just so undeniably respectful and oh my gosh, I just, I need to like send him a message now. <laughs> just like, hey, I'm talking about you and I'm saying thanks again. You're going to be on the podcast. <laughs> You're going to be on the podcast. He's so proud of you though. He sent me a whole bunch of messages Aww. today. Just like, hey, I'm really excited for you and I'm proud of you for finally taking this step. Well, I just like, yeah, I just so appreciate you sharing everything that you have and also really talking about like your growth process and all of this and what that has looked like. I think that's just as important of, um, you know, and just as important part of people's story to touch on. And, um, if it's okay with you, I'd kind of like to wrap up, but before we do, I, um, I always like to finish by just kind of asking everyone who's on the podcast to kind of share any words of advice or wisdom from your experience to any survivor who might be listening right now? Probably the best thing I would have to say is if you have a feeling that something's wrong, even if it's just a very minor feeling, don't dismiss it. Because I feel like a lot of abuse happens with like a culmination, like a snowballing effect of like something bad kind of feels like it's bad. And then it's like, okay, well, it's not as bad as it could be, but it doesn't matter how big or small abuse is abuse. And especially navigating really, really fragile times of your life, like being a teenager, if something, if you don't understand something, it's, it's better to explore that uncertainties. And like, if you're questioning if something's okay or something's not to find somebody who can be trusted, like if it's, in my sense, if I had reached out to some of my other friends and told them what was happening at the time and gotten more input than just my little bubble that I had, I might have had some better education on what was going on. And having that support helps so much. And it's like you said, kind of like we compare ourselves constantly um, to experiences around us. And I think not having your whole life centered around one person, and I know that can be so hard, especially if people have like disabilities or have moved away from family and things like that. But your life should never center around one person. Like somebody can mean a lot to you, but nobody should have complete and total everything over you. Not like that. You need friends, you need family, you need support system, however that may be. Being isolated like that is is never good. So I guess my best advice would be just continue to maintain relationships around you even if you're in a relationship because the relationships around you can be just as important as important as the one that you're in yeah the romantic relationship you might be in yes totally yeah I love that message of prevention as well which was a theme I was hearing throughout your story this you know this idea that we just do not teach young people at all the skills that they need to to know how to choose healthy relationships for themselves and I'm a big you know prevention is one of those things that I just can't you know talk about enough so I just really appreciate that part of your story and um yeah and this idea that like no matter how big or small like you were saying it could be the slightest thing but if something doesn't feel right you should listen to that uh instinct 
which is definitely something that's come up a lot on the podcast. And, you know, I've talked to lots of survivors and it's interesting to hear a lot of the details are different, but those themes, those like core central messages are often the same. And, um, you know, it's, it's crazy that such people constantly dismiss those little gut feelings, but we have gut feelings for a reason. You know, if, if everything was right, you wouldn't have that feeling. Right. A hundred percent. Well, on that note, I think we're going to wrap up, but I just, you know, want to thank you again so much. Yeah, we (laughs) did it. And like, just full disclosure, we've had quite the experience trying to get your I think you're the last recording of the season so but I know freaking a uh, phoenix in the ashes is actually uh works in a COVID-19 testing laboratory so she she has been working her ass off for all of us thank you thank you and uh it has been crazy but I'm happy to do it I know. And it's been quite a wild ride just trying to get like some time that you're not working 12 hours in a laboratory. So um, I think for night shift. <laughs> right, good Lord. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you really for taking the time to do this on your day off. And um, with that, I think thank you for having. Me. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll call it an episode. Bye everybody. Okay. Bye. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.